This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. This is Global Tennessee. I'm Pat Ryan from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Today we have a, a great guest uh, to talk about uh, one of the most important, if not the most important problem uh, plaguing mankind these days, global nuclear weapons proliferation. Uh, I'm joined today by uh, Joseph Serencioni from the Plowshares Fund. Uh, welcome, Joe, to uh, Nashville and to the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Well, thank you very much, Pat. It's a pleasure to be here. I love Nashville so far. Well, we've uh, we've gotten you at least the windshield tour of, of downtown, <laughs> and you saw some of the honky tonks in the rain last night. Uh, hopefully, we'll get some more time to to show you around. Great. Uh, today, we're going to be talking with uh, Joe about uh, the the overall concept of uh, the challenge of uh, global global weapons uh, proliferation. And as the president of the Plowshares Fund, uh, he is the uh, I would say the preeminent. Uh, individual leading the uh, premier organization, uh, non-governmental organization, seeking to uh, eliminate and reduce uh, the threat from nuclear weapons. So we're pleased that uh, that Joe is here as part of the Tennessee World Affairs Council uh, Distinguished Visiting Speaker Program, and he is here for two days in Nashville speaking with uh, groups. Uh, we started out this morning at Lipscomb University, talked, uh, he was visiting uh, lecture uh, uh speaker at a class at Lipscomb University. We're going to be going to the Nashville Rotary Club and uh, a global town hall at uh, Belmont and the Nashville Chamber of Commerce. So thanks, Joe, for coming to uh, to Nashville and spending time uh, talking with our community about uh, this uh, important issue. Well, thank you for bringing me here, and thank you for all your hard work. What the World Affairs Council is doing is is God's work, you know, going out and not just having me come to speak to you or to do your podcast, but to organize all these other talks so I can reach the university communities, the business communities. It, it's a real pleasure, and you have packed my schedule. <laughs> I am working from dawn to dusk. Thank you, Patrick. I, I, hope, I hope it won't be uh, uh, too difficult, but we, uh, we want to get uh, uh, you to see as, as many people as we can, and, and we think we've succeeded at least uh, loading the agenda, and we'll see how it goes uh, as, as we move along in, in the schedule. Um, this morning, you, you spoke with uh, students at Lipscomb University, and you talked about uh, five uh, areas that are of most concern to you as, as you talk to people about the threats that mm-hmm. uh, nuclear weapons pose. Do you, do you want to start out uh, with that, and we, we can sure. uh, work around it at the margins, uh, but uh, th- this is important for our, our audience to understand what, what, these, what these issues are. I think some people become complacent when uh, you talk about global nuclear weapons, it, it's sort of, well, that's that's not really something I can do something about or right. should even worry about because that was uh, Dr. Strangelove back in the day and it's yeah. no longer an issue. Well, Lord knows we have enough to worry about in our daily lives, in our state, in our cities. Um, but you got to devote a little bit of your worry time to these planetary issues, these things uh, like climate change or you might think of it as global poverty or income inequity or nuclear weapons, which for me are the number one existential threat to the planet. We have enough nuclear weapons to destroy human civilization and most humans in an afternoon. 
So let's, you know, we have about 15,000 nuclear weapons in the world divided among nine nations. The U.S. and Russia have most of those weapons, about 95% of them are held by these two countries. And what you're worried about is what John F. Kennedy was worried about when he said we live under a nuclear sword of Damocles hanging by the slenderest threat, thread that could be broken by madness or, or miscalculation or accident. And those three are still what you're worried about. So let me just tell you the, the top five things most nuclear experts are worried about in the world today. Number one, we're in a new nuclear arms race. You may have thought that this was over, that it ended with the Cold War, that uh, you don't see the nuclear weapons, so maybe they're not really a problem anymore. Wrong. We have nine countries all of whom, with nuclear weapons, all of whom are building new nuclear weapons. Some of them have small arsenals, like North Korea, maybe 20 or so, or uh, United Kingdom, or France, a couple of hundred. Uh, and some of them, like the U.S. and Russia, have thousands. But all of them are now developing new weapons, some increasing their arsenals, some replacing, building an entirely new generation of nuclear weapons like we are and the Russians are. Uh, what that risks is decades more of this nuclear sword of Damocles. And, and some, if, if you think that we can keep these nuclear weapons around indefinitely and they're not going to be used, that some of them are not going to go off, you are much more optimistic than I am. I, I think these numbers of weapons infallible human hands is just waiting for catastrophe. So that's number one. And there's a lot of uh, editorials now about this. The New York Times on the day we're speaking has published a big editor editorial about this. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has set their doomsday clock. How far are we from way away from apocalypse at two minutes to midnight? So there's widespread concern about this. That's threat number two. Whether you support or oppose President Trump, um, polls show that one of the biggest issues the public has with President Trump is his command of the nuclear arsenal. They're worried that a president this impetuous could order a nuclear strike. And it, it exposes this archaic system we have where the control of U.S. nuclear weapons are under the control of one person. The president has unchecked, unfettered ability to launch a nuclear weapon or, or weapons at any time for whatever reason. And that worries people. And that's why Senator Bob Corker from the great state of Tennessee had the first hearing since the 1970s. At his, when he was then chair in the Foreign Affairs Committee, Foreign Relations Committee, um, on the command and control of nuclear weapons. It's why Congressman a Adam Smith and Representative Jim Cooper from Nashville are, are going to be holding hearings on U.S. nuclear posture, the comprehensive hearings like we haven't seen in years because they're worried about this structure that we have. So many weapons on hair-trigger alert could be launched within minutes' notice. You, Patrick, when you in your in your Navy career came up close and personal with this command and control issues. So that's issue number two. You're worried in particular about this, this president and his control. And then we can go more global, <clears throat> excuse me, and you're worried about uh, number three on my list is um, Iran. We had a deal with that we negotiated with our European partners, with Russia and China, the European Union, that rolled back Iran's nuclear program to a fraction of its size, froze it for a good 15 years, and put it under a microscope with cameras and seals and inspectors. So we were highly confident that they would not use that program to build a nuclear weapon. Uh, President Trump has left that agreement. It's still alive. The European partners argued ferociously against him leaving. Um, 
but he's left. And this not only puts strains in the NATO alliance, but it also raises the risk that there could be a conflict with Iran because people like Senate, like National Security Advisor John Bolton, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, um, are ratcheting up the pressure on Iran. They have an idea that if you just squeeze them hard enough, the, the regime will crack and then we will be forced into compliance or collapse. I think this is extremely dangerous, and I'm worried that even though I don't think President Trump wants a war, the rhetoric that he's using and the fact that there are some in his administration and allies in the region, like Israel and Saudi Arabia, who want a military conflict, maybe a small one, what they call a bloody nose, a strike, or maybe a big one that would try to overthrow the regime, this could lead to a devastating, catastrophic a new war in the Middle East that would make Iraq and Afghanistan look like warm-up acts and then set off a nuclear arms race. Because if, if Iran, who our intelligence services say are not trying to get a nuclear weapon now, we started a war with them, well, bang, it's pedal to the metal. They're going to try to get one, and if they start, then Saudi Arabia is going to try to match that. That's the nightmare scenario. Okay, quickly. Well, you know, we we uh, we jointly wrote a uh, an op-ed for the Tennessean, and, and I think uh, one of the, the the salient points on the Iran nuclear deal was uh, uh, the question that Iran certainly needs to be called to account for its behavior in the region. Absolutely. But the uh, breaking the the uh, JCPOA, the, the Iran nuclear deal, was uh, not the way to do that. It was negotiated as a sole objective of stopping the nuclear program. Yeah, we have a long list of, of things we disagree with Iran with, starting with how they treat their own people, starting with the repressive theocratic kleptocracy right. that they put in that country, starting with what their support for Hamas and Hezbollah against our ally Israel started. And they are involved in regional conflicts. I and mean, they're in a struggle for control in the region with Saudi Arabia and to some extent Israel, which is why Saudi Arabia and Israel want to take military action against them. I get that. but And those are problems that are very difficult to solve, but they're so much easier to solve if Iran does not have a nuclear weapon. And that was the point of the agreement. It was it addressed one problem and one problem only. It didn't stop their other activities. It didn't provide a cure for cancer. It's not going to let you get rid of those unwanted pounds, but it made sure that Iran was not going to have a nuclear weapon for at least 15 to 20 years. And then all these other problems become easier to solve. So that's why so many of us disagree with the decision to leave it. You should build on it. Let's find a, a, t techniques or other agreements that can counter Iran in those areas. And, and another uh, issue that uh, that critics raise is that President Trump, when he campaigned and also while he's been in office, said that the uh, the agreement was uh, was faulty, uh, but that he was going to negotiate a better agreement. But we haven't seen anything in the direction of renegotiating a, an Iran nuclear deal. It seems the administration has regime change in Iran as its focus. Which is what worries us. There is no plan for how to address this. If somebody can tell me what the administration's plan is for for keeping Iran's program frozen, for stopping them from going down this path, for ending their other activities, I'd like to hear it, but we, we haven't so far. So I interrupted you after point four. Oh, what? yeah, we'll go to the other, the <laughs> remaining five. Just so, you know, and the reason we're doing this is just let people know that there's, there's a number of risks we sure. face, and it's not all one thing. And so you, 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 you have to have a comprehensive approach to all these. So the, the one that uh, worries us a lot is North Korea. And here I agree with President Trump. You know, at Plowshares Fund, we, we don't support presidents. We support policies. And when a president does what we think are the right policies, we support them. And when they don't, we oppose them. So, for example, we opposed President Obama when he was starting to 
pile money up into new nuclear weapons programs as he did in the last few years of his administration. And here we support President Trump because we think he's doing something very important. He's trying to pursue a diplomatic path to get rid of North Korea's nuclear weapons. And he's broken a taboo. He has started negotiations directly with Kim Jong-un, a, a brutal dictator, uh, worse, far worse than, than Iran. I mean, this is a, a man who's responsible for killing p perhaps a million, or the regime is responsible for killing perhaps millions of North Koreans who have died in starvation or in some of their, their gulags, who threatens South Korea with war on a daily basis. So what do you do with something like this? I mean, this is a big issue in, in, in national security policy debates. What's your approach to this? Do you try to overthrow them? Do you try to pressure them so they comply or collapse? Or do you try to strike a deal with them that reduces the threat? And uh, after a first year, where it was all threats from President Trump, you know, uh, fire and fury, whose nuclear button is bigger, right. um, et cetera. He's moved to negotiations. The first round of negotiations in Singapore weren't very satisfactory. They produced a sort of vague uh, statement and awarded Kim Jong-un with the, the global spotlight, raised his status. But there's signs that the summit in Vietnam in February 27th and 28th might be more productive. And I am guardedly optimistic that they can come out with an interim deal, which is the only way you could do this. It's not going to be North Korea agreeing, you know, to give up its nuclear weapons all at once. No, they think if they do, we will kill them. They look at Iraq and Libya, and they look at what happens when dictators give up their weapons, and the U.S. kills them. So it's not a crazy view from their point of view. So they, so in order to overcome that, we want to get them to dismantle part of their facility. In exchange, we will provide some economic benefits, loosening sanctions, and maybe together we can take a step towards easing this, the decades of hostility. What people are expecting is a, a declaration out of the Vietnam summit that declares an end to the Korean War, a war that ended before most Americans were born. It's symbolic in many ways, but that symbolism is, is very important, and if you're going to do that, Vietnam is almost the perfect uh, country in which to do that. Let me ask you a couple of questions about the, uh, the North Korean uh, uh, nuclear threat. When the Singapore summit came about, there was uh, concern raised in the press that uh, Japan and South Korea were not adequately consulted, that uh, the U.S. and North Korea were on a bilateral track, uh, whereas before there had been multi-party talks and we had the firm alignment with the uh, with our uh, allies and also the consultation within the government that uh, uh, right. not enough interagency coordination and coordination with Congress had been done. And uh, are, are you satisfied that we're, uh, we're doing the proper diplomacy now? No. <laughs> we, I support... President Trump's initiative, but he's doing it in a very poor way. There has not been, for example, the a National Security Council meeting to, uh, convened to discuss the, the all apparatus, this. The right. This is the way you get all the, the stakeholders involved. So the secretaries of the various departments come and the experts come and you hash it all out. Nothing like that. It's, it, this is the president's style. He does things uh, sort of on the fly. We have not had very consistent consultations with either the Japanese or the South Koreans. And from my point of view, number one is on this issue is you want to put diplomacy first, which he's doing. Number two is you want to put our partnerships second. So, you know, do this in lockstep with South Korea and Japan. They have different points of view. The South Korean government is fairly liberal right now. The 
Japanese government is conservative, but you've got to get their buy-in, because like Iran, this is an issue that involves more than just nuclear weapons. It, there's complex historical questions, strategic questions, regional questions, so you've got to get them buy-in. And one of the reasons I'm guardedly optimistic is that the South Korean president, Moon Jae-in, has been working night and day on this problem since he assumed the presidency. He's the reason we're having these negotiations in the first place. He's the one who used the Olympics last year as a way of, of having a diplomatic breakthrough in, in, in these relations. So we want him very closely involved. We want to take his advice quite seriously. Um, fortunately, we have a, a negotiator right now, a guy named Steve Began, a former um, Bush administration official, former Ford executive, um, who's quite good at this and is just, while we're talking, he's just coming back from two, three days in Pyongyang, North Korea, and a day in consultations with Seoul. So he knows what he's doing. I'm, I'm hopeful that the president will, will use him to the full extent possible and listen to his advice. So uh, if, if I'm sitting in Tokyo and Donald Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un are talking about uh, the intercontinental ballistic missile threat, to the American heartland, uh, I've got to be thinking, well, Washington and Pyongyang are going to arrange a deal, but it's still going to leave me held hostage as uh, a threat. Uh, they've, right. The North Koreans have uh, had weapons capable of reaching South Korea, obviously, but also Japan has been held hostage by North Korean weapons. Right. So one of the things about North Korea for me is the missed opportunities from both Republicans and Democrats over the last 30 years to solve this problem. We came real close, and then there was something that would happen. Some of it was, was, was the North Koreans uh, cheating on some of the agreements, and some of it was officials in the administration, particularly John Bolton, who doesn't want an agreement like this. He has a completely different philosophy. His view is that we overthrow regimes we disagree with. We don't negotiate with them. Um, and, and, and this goes for all kinds of agreements, including ones that Ronald Reagan negotiated. John Bolton just led the charge in pulling out of Ronald Reagan's Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty with, with Russia because he doesn't like agreements. He thinks military might should be the main shield for the United States, not pieces of paper. I understand that. It, but it's part, it's part of a big debate in the country. And so he killed the last agreement we had, some, something called the Agreed Framework, that had frozen North Korea's plutonium production facility. He killed that in 2003 using the excuse of the North Korean cheating as he wrote, this was the hammer I'd been looking for to smash this agreement. So you're, 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 you're worried that these kinds of agreements are, are, um, have been politics and ideology have prevented us from solving this problem when it was smaller, when we had the chance to do it in the past. As a result, the problem keeps getting bigger. So North Korea's program is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They had detonated their first nuclear device in 2006 um, uh, when George W. Bush was president. They went thermonuclear in 2017 when Trump was his first year of his presidency, that is going from an atomic bomb like the ones we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to a hydrogen bomb, a thermonuclear device, 10, 12 times bigger than those bombs. We think they perfected the technique to miniaturize it and put it on a, a warhead. They've had missiles for some time, as you say, that could reach Seoul, that could reach Tokyo, so they've been living under this threat. But also in 2017, they tested an intercontinental ballistic missile twice, and it was surprisingly good. I mean, the North Koreans are terrible at lots of things, but building nuclear missiles, they're very good at it. 
Right. So I believe they have a, the ability to hit Nashville or any other city in the United States uh, with a thermonuclear armed uh, missile pretty much any time they'd like to do it. And so that's the problem you have to deal with. And our allies are worried that we might settle for something that, for example, eliminates those long-range missiles but leaves the nuclear program and the short-range missiles. So what about me, they might be asking. Right. And in the case of South Korea, they're not only worried about missiles and, uh, and nuclear weapons, but the uh, the threat posed by the North Korean army to Seoul, which lies just over the DMZ. Yes. Well, in some ways, if we can get back to it being just a conventional threat, that would sure. be major progress. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'd like to remind uh, our listeners uh, that this is Global Tennessee, the podcast of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Uh, you can get more information about the Tennessee World Affairs Council at tnwac.org. Today, we're talking with uh, Joseph uh, Cerencioni. He's the president of Plowshares Fund, which is uh, dedicated to reducing and eliminating nuclear weapons. There could be no more uh, significant uh, topic for us to talk about. Uh, Joe, uh, thanks again for, for being here with us today. Uh, tell us about Plowshares. What, uh, uh, what do you do? How do you do it? Well, Plowshares, you know, often in these kinds of circumstances when I'm giving talks like this, people ask, well, what can I do? What, what, can, what can an individual do? Uh, and Plowshares is a great example of an individual, our founder, Sally Lilienthal, a San Francisco philanthropist who was scared in 1981. She thought Ronald Reagan and Leonid Brezhnev were going to blow up the world, and a lot of people thought that. That was a pretty good analysis. So she gathered her friends in her San Francisco living room, and they pooled their resources. These were fairly wealthy individuals, and they started looking around for the best people with the smartest ideas on how to uh, stop this arms race, how to pull us back from the nuclear brink. And they liked the results, and they so they kept doing it, and they started this foundation. They called it Plowshares Fund after the Bible. They shall turn their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And uh, Sally led a great foundation for many years, and when she died, the board decided they wanted to keep it going, and they wanted to expand. And they hired me to become their president. I run it now from Washington, D.C. We become more policy-oriented. We, we do a lot of work ourselves. We've grown to about a $10 million a year operation. We raise all the money we give away, and we give it to the best and smartest people. So if any of your listeners either have money or need money, give me a call, and we'll talk. You can reach me, Joe, at plowshares.org. Well, as, as a nonprofit organization here in Tennessee, if, if we have people who have money, we'll talk to them. <laughs> and if they need money, they can talk to you. Uh, but uh, that's, that's a terrific organization. And uh, for, for our listeners who don't know uh, much about it, we'll have links to, uh, to Plowshares Fund, uh, in the notes on the podcast, uh, as well as links to the uh, the op eds that uh, that Joe has referred. Yeah, to. including the one I just wrote with you. That's it was a great op ed. Thank you so much for for cooperating on that. I just, you know, since I've been president, I do a lot of TV. I do a lot of writing. But one of the things I'm best known for is being on the Colbert Report <laughs> with Stephen Colbert. In fact, to this day, if you Google nuclear Colbert, you get me. In this As it should be. Very funny skit that he did where, you know, I was his victim and I was the liberal that he was hammering away on. Oh, uh, okay. You know, he says... In he, his faux... Uh, in his, his former, you know, pers persona. Yes, yeah. you know, what's wrong with nuclear weapons? It's a very funny skit if you get a chance to see it. Well, we'll have, to, we'll have to make sure that that's up on the podcast <laughs> uh, notes as, as well. 
Uh, I, I, I might have seen it back in the day, but uh, I'll have to refresh myself on that. Uh, Joe, you talked about uh, your five issues, uh, command and control and uh, President Trump and, and his uh, unfettered uh, ability to uh, to uh, give the order to use U.S. nuclear weapons and the cases of Iran and North Korea. But there's also, uh, you've talked about nine countries around the world, and let's uh, let's go around the horn a little bit. Uh, South Asia and uh, and China yeah. in, in no particular order. What 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 do you want to share about those countries? Right, South Asia is is number five on my threat list. We don't think about this much, but these are two countries. Each have about 150 nuclear weapons. They're adversaries. They've been in four wars since independence, and any one a war could break out again at any moment. And there are people in both those countries hardline extremists, terrorist groups, who want to provoke a war. And so the fear is that could get to be the, the first real nuclear war in, in human history. And then we've got China. And that's not a, it's a threat. They have a, about 200 nuclear weapons, maybe 40 of them can reach us. But it's a deterrent force. It's what they call second strike. Um, they do that to deter us. One of the reasons that, unfortunately, people want to leave the INF Treaty, Ronald Reagan's treaty that eliminated this whole class of medium and intermediate-range nuclear weapons between short-range and ocean-spanning ICBMs, is not really about Russia. It's about China. China has these intermediate-range weapons, and there are some who want to deploy U.S. weapons in kind. So they want to start deploying ground-launched medium and intermediate-range nuclear weapons that we can base on China's borders to attack them. This is exactly the opposite way you should be dealing with this problem. You have China, a country on the rise economically, diplomatically, militarily, culturally, spreading their influence, growing in power. They're not, you're n that's not going to stop. They have a small nuclear arsenal, nowhere near the 7,000 weapons we have. This is the time you should be engaging China on limitations of it. Let's, let's see if they can get them to cap that arsenal and maybe even roll it back. Let's start engaging them in these kind of nuclear discussions. Sure. Starting an arms nuclear arms race with China seems to me to be unbelievably foolish. Who do you think is going to win this race right. You know, down the road? Where are we going to be in 2050, 2060? You think we're still going to have the kind of military advantage we have now? This is the time to try to build the world we want to see with American values in it, to try to be structuring these international institutions and bilateral agreements that, that take advantage of the advantage we now have and can build our values and our views into this. We're going to be in a much worse negotiating situation 10, 20, 30 years from now. I'm trying to wrap my mind around a map of the uh, Western Pacific and can't even imagine what uh, it would look like trying to figure out where to put ground-based nuclear weapons. Well, that's weapons. a very good question. It's highly unlikely that Korea or Japan is going to want this. Sure. You know, they're already, they're, that would just put a huge bullseye on them. So the only place you got is Guam. And uh, it doesn't wouldn't take many nuclear warheads to, uh, to preemptively attack Guam and wipe them all out. Right. It's really and, and on foolish. foreign shores, we, we can recall what happened in Europe when we put the Pershings in there back in the Reagan administration, the, uh, the protests and the, uh, the political dissent. And Th that's exactly right. The, the U.S. used to have thousands of nuclear We used to have 1,000 nuclear weapons in South Korea. George W. H. W. Bush pulled them all out. We no longer have those missiles with an exception of about 150 left in Europe. You try to put them back in, wow. Yeah. If you liked the demonstrations you saw in the 1980s, you're going to love the demonstrations that those will provoke. 
for sure. Let's uh, quickly uh, shift to South Asia, another important region. Uh, we're, we're close on time here, so I just want to at least cover as many uh, important mm-hmm. topics so people get an understanding of what the scope of the problem is. You're worried about two issues in, with South Asia. One is war between Pakistan and, and India, which you've discussed. The other, Which, which is not uh, something that they have uh, shown any... Uh, uh, right. aversion to in the past. Well, it was only a year ago that people were, that there was ac- a, a, an upscale in the in the activity going on over the line of control, the right. border region. You know, and Indian and Pakistani forces die every almost every week still on that border. I mean, this is a real live conflict that has been unresolved. So you're worried about this escalating to a war, and in all the war games we do on this, it all quickly goes nuclear. So you're worried about that. But you're also worried about Pakistan's control of its nuclear weapons. This is a country with a, a, a collapsing economy, an unstable government, with uh, fundamentalist forces, it, it, with influence in the military and intelligence apparatus of that country with al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda-like organizations operating within the national territory of, of, of Pakistan. We're worried not so much with the Pakistani government's control over those weapons. These are their crown jewels. They guard them very tightly. So we're worried about the instability of the government. What happens if the government falls? Who gets those weapons? Who gets the scientists and engineer who know how to build the weapons? Who gets the material the highly enriched uranium and plutonium that Pakistan has produced for those weapons. That is a nightmare scenario, and we have no comprehensive solution to that. Right. Let's uh, go a little further west. Uh, Israel, Saudi Arabia. Israel is, doesn't admit that, what do they call it, ambiguous? Uh, yes. So they don't, it, want to, they don't want to admit it, but they don't want to say... Right, nuclear ambiguity. Exactly. They neither and, admit nor deny. Right. But everybody and, knows they have approximately 80 to 100 nuclear weapons. We've, they've had them since 1968. We didn't want them to get them, um, but they did. We have never favored any other nation getting nuclear weapons, including the United Kingdom, who helped us build the bomb in the Manhattan Project. When they started to get one in 1950, we opposed it. So we have never favored anyone getting. We don't. The U.S. does not believe in the theory that nuclear weapons are stabilizing. We don't want anyone else to get them, and we've resisted. But we do work closely with the United Kingdom on delivery systems, the Trident submarines and missiles, and so forth. Once they got them, right. That's exactly right. We have nuclear sharing uh, agreements with France, for example, and with the with the United Kingdom. Um, but in the Middle East, uh, in the Sa- Middle East, Saudi Arabia has said that if yes. Iran gets a weapon, so here's what you're worried about: they're going to get a weapon, and we uh, occasionally right. hear out of Saudi Arabia that they want to make the Middle East a nuclear-free zone. So this is the classic proliferation problem. Israel's got nuclear weapons; have had them since 1968. Interestingly, that has not actually provoked other countries to get them which is interesting to think about. It's not automatic that other countries will get them if one does. But in, in now that Iran had started this program, until the agreement, you were worried that if Iran moved towards get, developing a nuclear weapons, its neighbors would follow. E- even though we've got the agreement, there are other, Saudi Arabia is still interested in getting this, and Mohammed bin Salman said if, if Iran breaks out of the agreement... Saudi Arabia will start building a program. So you're worried about the dominoes falling here, Iran, Saudi Arabia, maybe Egypt, what happens to Turkey. And so that's the proliferation uh, cascade that you worry about. I don't see that happening really anyplace else in the world, but the, the Middle East has got the money, it's got the resources, it's got the conflicts. If you don't solve the Iran problem— And it the has Iran the presumption problem, that uh, they're under threat. They're under threat. 
So, you know, we, we have solved many, many proliferation problems. There used to be some 28, 30 countries that were exploring nuclear weapons. We beat the thing back and back. We're down to the two hard cases, Iran and North Korea. If we can solve those, we could be looking at the end of proliferation. But if we don't solve them, we could unleash a new wave of nuclear proliferation that could be more urgent and more likely to lead to nuclear use than the um, proliferation waves of the past. A sobering uh, conversation. And uh, one last note uh, this morning, uh, talking to students at Lipscomb, you uh, rated the likelihood of uh, war with Iran over uh, the current uh, direction of, of policy towards Iran. What? Yeah, is, uh, I, I, I don't. As, as much as I worry about North Korea and, the, and they have nuclear weapons, I'm not really worried as much about a war with North Korea as long as diplomacy continues. We, none of our neighbors, none of our allies want war with North Korea in that region, but we do have allies in the Middle East that want war with Iran. Israel and Saudi Arabia are engaged in an intense conflict. Israel is bombing Iranian targets every week in Syria. Saudi Arabia is engaged in a war in Yemen where they're bombing targets, including uh, Iranian supply depots in Yemen, every week. So you're, you are worried that, whether by design or miscalculation, some, one of these things is going to lead to a flashpoint. The U.S. is ratcheting up its, rec- its, uh, its rhetoric. We have our, our ships are still patrolling in the Persian Gulf. The Revolutionary Guard, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, harasses them. Um, you know, there's hardliners in Iran that would like to have a military conflict with the U.S. And they've been emboldened by the uh, tearing up of the JCPOA by the U.S. And and they say, see, we told you, you can't trust these people. And so you have hardline factions in both countries or in many countries that believe that a military conflict is in their interest. So all the arrows are pointing in the wrong direction. It's not just me who says this. I belong to the Council on Foreign Relations and our president, Richard Haas, warns uh, just last week that the, the threat of a war with Iran is, is growing by the day. Again, uh, sobering thoughts, and uh, uh, Joe Serencioni, we're, we're pleased that uh, you came to Nashville to, to sound the alarm and share with us your concerns over global nuclear proliferation and you know, these cases that uh, we see every day in the news, and some people just think, well, that's fiction or something from Hollywood, not to be worried about, but these are real threats that we have to, uh, that Americans uh, should be yeah. more aware of and yeah. and speak up to, when, to. when we're spending money on uh, more weapons and when we could be spending more money on more diplomats and, and uh, doing some more constructive things. To, to paraphrase uh, X-Files, the threats are out there and we need smarter policies to deal with them. Terrific. Well, Joseph, uh, thank you for coming uh, to Nashville. Thanks for being with us here at uh, the Global Tennessee Podcast, and uh, we look forward to uh, to you coming back and maybe getting into a honky tonk or two down, downtown, <laughs> and uh, hot chicken and barbecue and all the things that uh, Nashville is becoming famous well, for. Thank you, Pat, and thank you for the World Affairs Council and all the great work you do. That's it for uh, today's edition of the Global Tennessee Podcast. Uh, you can get more information about the Tennessee World Affairs Council at tnwac.org. Please sign up to become a member. If you uh, have a few extra dollars in your pocket, uh, throw them our way. We're an all-volunteer organization, a nonprofit, uh, very, uh, uh, very humble uh, operation here, but we can do more uh, for our community uh, with your support. Thanks again, and we look forward to uh, talking with you next time. This has been Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council in cooperation with the Center for International Business at Belmont University.
and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The executive producer of Global Tennessee is Patrick Ryan, senior producer Logan Monday, technical advisor Bill Ryan, and the voice of Global Tennessee as well as the Penn Jones Conspiracy. I'm Benjamin Olson. Visit tnwac.org slash podcast for more information.